Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today is a man known for not only his writing skills and his sense of humor, but also for his passion for humor, charity, eclectic eyewear, and unique t-shirts. The one, the only, Bruce Valanche. For everything about hello. Bruce, hello. I was going to mention, for everything about Bruce, go to wegotbruce.com, and you can follow him on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And officially, Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm thrilled. I and my eclectic eyewear are thrilled <laughs> to be here. Now, first taking, of all... <laughs> taking my lighting. <laughs> first of all, what were you thinking agreeing to come on my show? Yeah, they said Vegas. Something about Vegas. Something. <laughs> he's in Vegas. I said, well, okay. Anybody who's in Vegas deserves compassion. Exactly. Even though I've this, been there many times even and heated. <laughs> even though this show is more about the world of ideas and people, but yes, I am in Las Vegas. So which branch of Hollywood are you part of, reform, conservative, or orthodox? <laughs> as, as it applies to Hollywood? Yes, of course. Like, uh, <laughs> or uh, atheists uh, in your case. <laughs> I think I'm Reconstructionist. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a whole other, it's a different sect. <laughs> exactly. From, from all of them. We're building back <laughs> from the ashes. <laughs> and eventually you'll get there, hopefully. I thought about you for a while about this because I've never seen it show up in any of your conversations that I've been able to listen to or watch, ah. but you strike me as an old soul. So my question is, do you feel an emotional connection with the comedy and the comedians of the Catskills? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Part, I mean, partially because I'm, I'm that, I'm of that age, you know, I was watching uh, Billy Crystal, who I've worked with for years, was on Colbert the other night. He was talking about the comic he plays in Mr. Saturday Night, Buddy Young Jr., has been kind of an obsession of his over the years because we grew up in that era where we and we grew up in New York and Jersey and we went to the Catskills and we saw those guys when we were young and impressionable. And that was the predominant style. In the course of, of my <coughs> maturing, <laughs> a whole other style came in, a whole sort of a very hip political Dick Gregory, Mort Saul, uh, Shelley Berman, Bob Newhart, guys who were not in the Milton Berle, Alan King, you know, tradition. So, so we were also influenced by that, George Carlin. So uh, there was, uh, so, so it evolved, but yeah, it's all, it's still there, you know, and especially with what was on television when we were kids, you know, and we were watching television a lot when we were kids. Sure. Ed Sullivan and all the comedians that came on there. Yeah, all those shows. Were you a fan of Jackie Mason? Yeah, I was always a fan of Jackie Mason. And uh, I was annoyed that Ed Sullivan had sort of blacklisted him. And then, uh, and I was thrilled when he had a comeback. And then I actually got to know him a little bit and be friends with him. And he was a, he was a, a tough customer. You know, he was a mer mercurial guy. And as he got, he got, he got so successful later in life. And he just kept doing uh, shows. And he, I think, had a hard time finding material because his material got angry and racist, and it, it just it weirdly took on a lot of uh, a lot of colors it never had before. And I think that unfortunately, a lot of people remember him from that period when he was uh, a big star, but his, it was already on the wane, and so he was like trying to be, you know, contemporary. That's not unusual. I mean, uh, it, it happened to Joan Rivers also. I wrote for Joan, 
And uh, after Edgar died, she had to reframe herself. And among the things that happened was she discovered uh, working for audience, well, she discovered that gossip and uh, and making fun of uh, celebrities, because she couldn't make fun of herself anymore, so uh, or of her husband. So she uh, that became her stock and trade. And then as as she got older and she wants to connect with the younger audience, she got really dirty. And I remember my mother and her card game went to see her at, in Jersey, and my mother called me up and said. When did she get the mouth on her? <laughs> filthy. She's filthy. She used to be filthy. She wasn't filthy in Miami and the Concord. She wasn't filthy then. So I said, well, you know, the times they are changing. Yes, and the people are if they want to keep going. So in that right. sense, yeah. You mentioned your mom. You have a great relationship with her. You've always been connected with your mom, even from the, you went to Ohio from the East Coast with a bunch of people and eventually went to Hollywood, but you've always had this very strong relationship with your mom. Was she a tough cookie, but very supportive? Would that be the yeah. combination? Well, she's gone now. She she left in 95 I'm and sorry, her, yeah. her joke was, uh, the first 90 years are easy, the second 90 years <laughs> That's when her she began to decline, but she was herself until the end. She was just a, a prisoner of her body. But we, uh, she was my adopted mother. She adopted me when I was four days old, and I just found my birth mother, who's who died shortly after my adopted mother died. Ironically enough, but that whole that whole family finally surfaced after seven years of spitting into a cup. <laughs> uh, but. Yeah, I mean, she, she was uh, she was very controlling, and she was a tough customer, but she was really funny, and uh, and my parents uh, encouraged me. I mean, they they enabled me because they recognized I was happy when I was making faces in front of the mirror, and I was happy when I was performing. I was a child actor, never a child star, or we'd be in rehab having this <laughs> group. Right, exactly, uh, but. Yeah, and they, so they, they never stood in the way. They were hoping I would find something that would that would uh, produce income, you know. So they they knew I wouldn't be a doctor like my father, and and but they were nurturing me into trial law because they figured, well, he can perform in court like Perry Mason, and you know. But I didn't want to work a room that small. <laughs> Ironically, now I do frequently. That's another story. You you mentioned a child actor, not a child star. And I just thought if had you been a child star, it would have been the Bruce Valanche law instead of the Jackie Cooper law. Well, no, I, I because I, my parents would not have taken advantage. The thing about the thing about I mean, anything, I, any money I made as a child actor went into Bruce's college fund. So it was not they were not living off of me. You know, the thing about Jackie Cooper and a lot of and Jackie Coogan and uh, right. a lot of other People not named Jackie, who were kids, <laughs> was that their that was the that was the, the family revenue. They were all making money off of the kid, and uh, so uh, it was a whole different thing. The kid was a commodity. This was not the, the case in my family. Well, I mentioned about moving from the East Coast, New Jersey, New York, to Ohio, where amazingly you went to Ohio State. And then you, I did the, the big farm, the big farm. And so that I think was in a way a good because it exposed you to people that a lot of people that live and work in Hollywood never get exposed to, which is in a way middle America. So I think it gives you that pot. That well, a lot of people in Hollywood have, have run away from that. They were exposed to it when they were young and they said they were getting out. <laughs> <laughs> but by moving there voluntarily, I, I should point out with a bunch of other people. You at least absorb some of that 
what I would call middle American culture, which I think, and you may disagree, does that help your writing or, or doesn't help your writing? Well, yeah, I think, I mean, I lived in the Midwest for 10 years. I went to Ohio State for five years, and then I got a job at the Chicago Tribune. And Chicago, even though it's a big cosmopolitan city, is is the Midwest. And, the, uh, you know, it, uh, it constantly shows up, certainly in the politics. I mean, uh, at the Trib, we had a, a sign saying, remember that the southernmost point of Illinois is 100 miles from the northernmost point of Mississippi. Ah, so. Uh, it was it was a, a whole different mindset, and Chicago is a, a blue metropolis in an essentially red state. So it certainly, yeah, I mean, it helped seeing how how the other half lived, you know. <laughs> but I, I it, you know, I got to Ohio and met people who thought Jews had horns. <laughs> Wait a minute, they don't. Oh, we, okay, we, okay. <laughs> we, why, why are there so many plastic surgeons? I have. <laughs> to remove the horns. <laughs> Thank you. Bingo. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I met a lot of people who had never met a Jew in their life. Amazing. And uh, there they were in Columbus, Ohio, where, where ironically, a kid I grew up with became the rabbi. <laughs> Harold Amazing. Berman became, is still the rabbi. I think he just retired. You know, there are communities in America where there are people that have never met a non-Jew. Well, only in Brooklyn, I think. Well, I think there's more than one besides that. It's got to be somewhere else in the United States besides Brooklyn. I may be wrong. Yeah, well, the, uh, we're, we're all the guys who work for Walmart, Bentonville, Arkansas, <laughs> where they have an Orthodox Jewish community of, of composed of accountants who, who work for Sam Walton. <laughs> so here's a non-sequitur question. Do you think that Delhi will survive? Oh, yeah. Well, I think that the, that the concept of a deli will survive. I, I, I mean, I think we'll be, there's a lot more kosher style than there is kosher. I mean, the, the, the old school version of a deli, the kosher deli, where you can't get, you know, milk, can't get cream for your coffee, that I'm afraid may be going away because I don't think a lot of people observe it. Or, I mean, as, 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 as many balchuvas as there are, which is, uh, Balchuva is a French word meaning return, return to the fold. The, the Balchuvas, who, who are living more orthodox lives, maintain uh, kashrut. But uh, I don't know that there's a market for a, a kosher deli outside of the very, very Jewish centers. Well, what about so, uh, secular? But the idea of deli, I mean, yeah. I think it's become, you know, a universal thing. Bagels are certainly universal. Lox is universal. Right. I mean, all, all that that kind of stuff. Well, what, I guess I'm, what I'm, I guess I'm saying is like Nathan Al is not kosher or it's factors a, in L.A. It's not right. kosher, but it's a deli that's part of the community and people yeah, get there. I mean, yeah, sure. It, it's just it's a style. Absolutely. Right. But I, I grew up with, with kosher. All the delis were kosher. I mean, that was, you know, and, and anything else they would put on the kosher style. <laughs> you know, man, it was not actually kosher meat, right. but it was kosher it, stuff. It, yeah. They prepared it like like it was. Yeah. But we weren't kosher. We, we, we were those Jews who would go to the movies on Sunday and then have Chinese. <laughs> that was our ritual. So and and it wasn't it wasn't like you know kosher Chinese, which has always made me laugh. Right. But, but, oh, uh, <laughs> that was my aside question or my non sequitur question. But back to Bruce himself. Yeah. Of, of all the acting and writing and performing that you've done, what was the most meaningful for you? Maybe there's more than one. Maybe there's two or three within the context of humor, of course. Well, uh, I'm, yeah, the, the most successful stuff was all the Academy Award shows and, and working with Bette Midler from the beginning. 
and uh, all of that. I mean, the most meaningful was the the, the charity work, I and mean, when we started doing benefits, raising funds for AIDS for people who had AIDS and for AIDS research. Because uh, when it started, it was a pariah, and nobody wanted to touch it. And uh, we had a it was it was an uphill struggle, like Kate Bush. It was running up that hill. You know, we just uh, we had the. Uh, but it was very meaningful because so many people we knew were sick and dying and, uh, uh, and, and the government was doing nothing. So it, it was almost the definition of meaningful. <laughs> it was comedy with a purpose. And all oh, comic relief was like that, too. There was a great uh, I mean, I did we did 15 of them, I think. And um, it was it was great to know that we were that comedians normally pictured as lighthearted individuals. When we all know they're angst-ridden, were had, were taking up the cudgels for these causes that the government had abandoned, and also too, it wasn't in your case. It was actually, you know, nose to the grindstone or elbow to the whatever they call it. But the yeah. point is, it wasn't virtue Pe- pedal to the metal. That's it, pedal to the metal. It wasn't virtue signaling. You were actually elbow grease. That's where I'm going with yeah, this. We you, were, you were hardworking it. and this putting these true. together. Yeah, yeah, it's true. We did it. We were we were doing it, and. Uh, at the beginning, it was uh, I would go to people and I would say, "Well, I'll, I'll I will do your disease if you will do mine." <laughs> so that's how I got to be uh, on first name basis with all the major diseases. Spina <laughs> bifida, I know all about it. You know, ectopic pregnancies, I'm your guy. Uh, I got involved in every one of those things because it was a trade off. Then they would come and do an AIDS fundraiser. Sure. Now, as long as you didn't catch all those diseases you traded off with, that's the important thing. Well, yeah, exactly right. But now there are so many new diseases to catch. Oh, no, <laughs> monkeypox. I thought it was a band. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was, too, in the 60s. I think it was like... Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> hey, hey, the monkeypox. People say, we monkeypox around. <laughs> Is there... <laughs> I, uh, I'm always amazed that because of your ability to write and perform comedy and you're just being having a natural sense of humor, that you were able to put together all these charitable fundraising events, because that does require a different skill set and a different, a different mind focus. It, well, you know, but it, it is show business. I mean, you know, I mean, there is, you're putting on a show and it starts with that. You're, it's Mickey and Judy and, and we have costumes in the barn. <laughs> right. People so you just have to, it's, it's focused on a particular thing. And obviously you choose things that you, that, Will will help hammer home the point of, of why you're raising this money, but it is it's, it's still showbiz. You know, I see what you're saying, but it still took getting off the couch, making phone calls, <laughs> getting people to agree to handle the mechanics, the the financial end of it. Yeah, the show part I get, but still you had to set up the organization. Oh, yeah, but, I mean that's yeah. that's producing right. something I never really enjoyed doing, and I never uh, that's why I never became a producer or a director because. Uh, I, I didn't have the ego for that. <laughs> you really have to, you know, have strong belief in everything you say and right. willingness to go forward. And I would, I just like to to write and uh, and perform. And I probably also I never had anything that I wrote screwed up by a director enough that I was angry enough to become one. Right. No, I get you. A lot of writers do that. You know that they say he he screwed my script. The hell, I'm gonna I'm gonna direct the next one. <laughs> Now, there's one category in Hollywood, and I say this from afar, there's one category in Hollywood that is a testament to ego, and that is the title of executive producer. 
And I've, I've noticed more and more movies and TV shows, they'll have one director, they'll have one producer, a co-producer, a consulting producer, a supervising producer, and then over 20 million executive producers. Yeah. Well, that's basically two things. Basically, um, executive producer traditionally has been a way to give somebody who controls the rights to the material uh, a title. And a lot of it had to do with uh, if you, you could maybe win an award for this if you had a title as opposed to just being the, the guy behind the scenes. So you would see uh, if a star was attached, his manager would be an executive producer because that way. And that, that also cut him in for some money. Uh, so that's one thing. And the other thing is that uh, on television, there are a lot of writers on shows and they're all at different pay grades. And so the different the different pay grades dictate that they're going to be this kind of producer and that kind of producer and all that. And, um, you know, so it's it's just sort of madness, but it's all attached to uh, to the money, where the, to where the money is coming from. Yeah, I'm and, glad you explained it. Yeah, I always wondered yeah, about that. I kept seeing all these. Well, it's be, it became so prevalent that the Producers Guild, which is, as you might guess, an organization of producers, has been giving awards for years. And I've been writing their show, which is never televised. We Zoomed it a year before last, but I, I write it and they started something called the Producer's Mark, which you will be noticing more and more. It'll say by produced by so-and-so and next to it, it'll go PGA. Yes. And uh, that means you've seen uh, that, that, that the Producer's Guild has determined this is the person who actually produced the movie right. as opposed to the person who wrote a check so that the picture could get made. He gets a producer title also, but he doesn't get the producer's mark. And that was to signify that there's a difference between, between all those That's things. a smart idea. It's a guild designation similar to the Cinematographer's Guild. and Right, the, the ASC. Yeah. And the They've had it for years and years. Smart idea. But that was just to, that was to denote that they were a member of the, of the union of the ASC, the Association right. of the Cinematographers. It's not... Uh, this is a little different because, I mean, this this has a subtext. Yes, they're members of the guild, but they're all members of the guild, but uh, these are the ones who actually made it happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, you've been in business so long that you've become a sage in a way. Do you, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you... I'm growing a beard so I can... <laughs> oh, I like it. ...sage my sage. Obviously, the industry has changed since you started in it. Are you of the firm belief or the infirm belief, since you recently had, uh, is that, are you of the firm belief that talent will out? And what I mean by that is this, that someone who's extremely talented as you are, who can write and perform comedy, will always be in demand no matter how the industry changes? Or does it get to a point where the industry changes so much that all of a sudden they just want real housewives, so to speak? Well, you, you're talking about uh, two different things. I mean, uh, reality television happened thanks to the Writers Guild. And when, the, when we went on strike, I think in 1988, maybe later, I've been on eight strikes with the Writers Guild since 1975. So I, I get the strikes confused. But one of them uh, opened up reality television because the studios and the, net, the, the networks realized that you could uh, you could do reality TV cheaper than scripted TV and uh, eliminate writers altogether or hire writers as consultants or hire them as producers. And they had writing duties 
And the Guild lost that one because um, it proliferated. When streaming came in, the scripted material came back. There was a hunger for, for, for it on the streamers. And so now it's become like the new golden age. So uh, um, a lot of that, a lot of that had to do with with the mechanics of the industry. Uh, on the other issue, uh, th- there will always be. Uh, if you're talented, yes, there'll always be. You'll always be talented, and there will be somebody. But uh, you know, you get aged out. I mean, you're at a point where there are younger versions of you. I mean, it used to be a joke about the actors. You know, we we'd like we'd like a uh, we'd like a younger Macaulay Culkin. You know, or I'm trying to think of who did. We'd like a younger Justin Bieber. It's we'd like, always a, we'd like a younger Jackie Cooper. Oh, wait a minute. A younger <laughs> Jackie Cooper. A younger baby Huey. <laughs> uh, and, you, and you get aged out because they think, oh, well, even if you're at iconic status, they kind of think, well, he's hip, but he, we need somebody, you know, young. And now, of course, the last few years with, with uh, 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 where people are so woke, that they're insomniacs. <laughs> it's, just get me somebody diverse. Get me, a, get me an Eskimo lesbian. <laughs> I, I mean, just please, just you know, staff it so that nobody pickets. Well, I have an idea. And so for you wind up getting a lot, getting people who are talented, but a lot of people who are also talented are on the outside, and I suppose that that is the yin and the yang because these people were always marginalized. And um, there you have it. So So what you could do, I have a great idea for you, Bruce. It's almost a new blacklist. So you could write under the name of an Eskimo lesbian. Well, it's the front. It's the front. The Woody Allen movie. It goes back to the blacklist days where blacklisted writers would shove the material under the door and somebody else's name would be on the page. And then 50 years later, when they're dead and buried, their grandchildren accept an Oscar in their behalf. (laughs) as their credit is restored. Well, that's why I'm suggesting it for you, is if you write under the uh, a pen name of an Eskimo lesbian, then you'll be fine, as you mentioned earlier. I had a, a, a collaborator. He was a wonderful writer, worked, worked well for Bob Hope, and he wrote a lot of variety television years ago. And uh, But uh, he wasn't very happy with a lot of the stuff that he wrote, so he created an alter ego and uh, a pen name, basically. And which you can do with the writing skill. And you can say, I, I want to write this under my pen name. And the pen, there has to be a name. that appears. So um, he used the same pen name over and over. And, and he called me one day and he said, uh, my accountant just told me that my pen name has got more work last year than I did. <laughs> hey, if the checks keep and coming he, in. And it was all for the kind of crap he didn't want to write. You know, right. <laughs> Wayne Newton at SeaWorld. He just was not interested in doing it. But, but he liked the money. Right, so, of course. Uh, so, he would, so he created the alter ego. That's so funny. You, you mentioned collaborating with someone, and that's part of what you do a lot. And you are one of those people, again, ego aside, you are very much involved in collaborative writing, especially for the Oscars yeah. and, and other yeah. events and, and I'm in a lot of rooms yeah in a lot of rooms a lot of rooms so what how does that if you can give us in a shorthand version your process without getting too technical for when you're collaborating versus when you're at home writing and looking at the screen well it's writing is a very lonely profession and when you're home and you're looking at the screen uh it's just you and the characters or whatever whatever the task at hand is and i you 
you get to what I call the alpha state, which is where you don't care about anything else. You're, you're totally lasered in on what you're doing. And that's wonderful. And that's where that's the gratifying part of, of writing. That's akin to actually being on stage and, and being in the moment or on camera being in the moment. Uh, you don't get the re- response the way you do in a the theater, uh, but or even from the crew on a, on a, on a shoot. But it's a great it's a great thing. And uh, the other the collaborative part is uh, appeals to the performance side of me, because when you're in a room with people, generally you are working on something that somebody else has already written a first draft of and you are you punching it up. You're making the jokes funnier, you're shifting, you're doing stuff. And so you get a chance to actually pitch. You get a chance to actually save the stuff. And uh, and some people are real great performers in the room, and uh, and it's fun and it's collaborative and it, you get a great a great charge out of it. So I'm I'm lucky in that I've had a, a nice balance of all of that. I mean, performing for real and writing by myself and writing with with a lot of other people. You know, I I suspect the stuff that you write with a lot of other people it doesn't necessarily last through the ages. But I I stopped caring about that. When I realized I wasn't going to be around anyway. So <laughs> yeah, when you confront your own mortality, you say a lot of a lot of stuff gets swept out of the way. Then understood. Any future projects? Speaking of uh, immortality, or even uh, well, the future? I, I yes, I wrote a musical. Uh, I will tell you about it because we are premiering it in September. During COVID, uh, a friend of mine and I, a director, had an idea, and we uh, we pitched it to a theater in Florida, which had the PPP a payroll protection thing. And they, as part of the PPP, you had to develop new work. So we got a grant. And it's about a guy who's 40 years old. He's gay. He's a, a would-be comic working as a waiter at a comedy club in New York. And COVID hits and the club closes and his relationship breaks up. And he goes to quarantine in the attic of his parents' home in Longview, Texas, where he has an intimate relationship with his imaginary friend, Dolly Parton. <laughs> so it's this guy and Dolly, and we used all of Dolly's music. And we did a Zoom, and and they loved it in Florida, and they wanted to book it. And so I had to go to Dolly for the, the rights to the music. And I thought, well, you know, it's not her brand, so she probably won't. She'll shoot it down. She loved it. <laughs> That's she, great. She's now my partner. She's she's in on it now. Of course, so it's Dolly. We're doing it. We're doing it in, in uh, seven regional theaters, one in Nashville next spring, where she will unveil it. Uh, but we, we actually premiere it September 17th in Wilmington, Delaware, where the Bidens are subscribers. I hope he wears a mask. Uh, <laughs> on September 17th, Delaware Theater Company uh, in Wilmington. And then we'll, it will go to vari- various other cities. It's called Here You Come Again which is, of course, one of her big hits. And it's also, she keeps showing up in his mind. <laughs> That's great. And of course, she's going to go to the opening. Well, I don't know. She'll go to Wilmington. She'll, she she may hold it off and, and wait until Nashville, you know, which is her home turf. Exactly. I haven't discussed it with her. You know, she's very busy. <laughs> I said, I can't believe you're doing this in between curing cancer and doing a moon landing. <laughs> and what happened has she done? <laughs> Amazing. Every week there's a new thing about Dolly did this and Dolly did that. <laughs> well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been the versatile and talented Bruce Valanche. For everything about Bruce, go to wegotbruce.com and you can follow him on Twitter, Instagram, 
and Facebook. And Bruce, thanks for being on the show. Wow. Oh, I'm delighted. Thank you. It was fun. It was. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.